and welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, fishermen, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area on the West Marin Coast are the Greater Farallons and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuaries, which together protect 4,581 square miles. I've got a two-part show for you today. On the first half of the show, we are diving into gelatinous creatures, gelatinous zooplankton, jellies, sometimes called jellyfish. Uh, Guest Dr. Stephen Haddock of the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute will be calling in and we'll be talking all about the jellies and most recently, specifically, the blue Valella Valellas that washed ashore. This is an annual thing that happens pretty much almost every spring, although some springs we don't see it so much. And I'm really looking forward to learning more about these jellies, why they come ashore. I know a lot of our beachgoers notice them and have lots of questions, so it should be a lot of fun. And then later on the second half, we have Jeff, Dr. Jeff Chester of Oceana calling in to discuss the latest with the sardine fishery in California and the recent decision to keep the commercial fishery closed due to the low numbers. So there's lots going on in the ocean. It's a cool, foggy day out here in West Marin. Hope you're, hopefully you're bundled up at home and can stay with us for a great show here on Ocean Current. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute talking about jellies. Welcome back. You're tuned to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. And about a month ago, the shores of Point Reyes and the beaches up and down California were covered with blue, squishy, jelly-like creatures that have evoked a lot of interest from just about every single beachgoer. Valella Valella, as they're called, really fun to say, washed up in mass along some of our beaches in Point Reyes. In fact, some areas really quite thick and other areas a little bit thinner. And the springtime phenomena seems to happen almost annually. And so I'm excited to talk today with Dr. Steve Haddock of the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, or MBARI. Steve studies deep sea gelatinous zooplankton, and he is doing research on bioluminescence, biodiversity, and ecology of deep sea and open ocean tenophores, siphonophores, radiolarians, and medusae. And if all those words are new to you, well, then stay tuned. We're going to dive into all these cool creatures um, that we're having here. And Steve actually has been on our show before. Steve was a guest talking about krill many, many years ago when I first started Ocean Currents. So, Steve, I'm really excited to welcome you back. You're live on KWMR. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Um, Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Thanks for calling in. Sure. So I really wanted to talk about Valellas, but I want to talk about other pieces of jellies, too, and other parts. You know so much about them. And Valellas are our current rage because they're all over the Mm -hmm. beaches, or they're kind of fading out a bit here, but I understand they're washing up a little bit maybe in Oregon. So can you just give us a little bit of an overview? Why do they wash up in the spring, and and why in such mass? And and then let's talk a little bit about what these animals actually are. Um, Okay, well, so... Valella are, they're called the by-the-wind sailors by, by some people um, because they sail by the wind. They have a fairly firm, stiff little sail that sticks out above the surface of the water, and they float on the water. They're often offshore where we don't really run into them very much. We just got a report last week of in, uh, rafts of them off Southern California that a, a boat captain saw about 50 miles out. They're often out there in the middle of the ocean, even as far as the central gyre, um, doing their thing, going through their life cycle. And when we run into them is when the prevailing winds start to blow them um, towards the shores. So, you know, we, we're seeing the subset of the time that that they're abundant and that the winds have pushed them onto the shore. And is this usually the winds that kind of indicate the beginning of upwelling season? Yeah, it's it's a similar thing. The winds that are out of the northwest or along the shore or coming a little bit off the shore or onto shore, um, those kinds of winds are going to 
are going to push them from their open ocean habitat and also stir up, move the surface water so that the, the deeper water can come up to the surface. So are they, oh, I guess they're always in mass when they're on the open ocean, so they come ashore in mass. And tell us a little bit about what each of these organisms are. They have this lovely little sail that sticks up, mm-hmm. and then there's this vibrant blue color and these tentacles underneath. Mm-hmm. And I understand that this animal is called a hydrozoan. And yeah. trying to understand a hydrozoan, for most of us, is pretty difficult. <laughs> so I'm hoping you can break it down a little bit about what a hydrozoan organism is. Okay. So I actually have a video about this, too, if somebody wants to um, look it up and see some animations. Um, but it's called The Secret Life of Valella, um, and it's it's linked. It's on YouTube, and it's linked from our jellywatch.org page. But um, the, the brief version is that hydrozoans are a subgroup of cnidarians, which are the, the stinging animals that include corals and sea anemones and also the big sea nettle-type jellyfish that, that people see a lot in moon jellies. But hydrozoans is a little lineage within that that um, its members tend to be smaller and more transparent. Um, so they may be like a clear bell, like a crystal jelly, and may just have four little canals that look like little white threads forming a cross inside the bell. Um, and one of the characteristics of many hydrozoan life cycles is that they have a hydroid stage. Some of them are always a hydroid. They're just, they look like a little feather kind of growing on the rock. Um, they don't make medusae, but other ones grow on the rock. They pop off baby jellies that are like what we would expect a jellyfish to look like. That swims around and reproduces, and then it settles back down to the bottom and attaches and forms the hydroid again. So it has this kind of alternating phase. Uh, the reason I'm telling you that is because Valella is a really interesting example where instead of attaching to the rock, the hydroid actually floats on the surface. So its attachment point is that air-water interface on the surface of the ocean. Whoa, that's so crazy. So it's easier to conceive of them upside down, uh, you know, like flipping them over. They would, they would be more familiar to us. It's like a hydroid little polyp sticking up off the bottom, but in their case they're dangling down from the surface. And, you know, one of the reasons for this is that there's tons of substrate in the open ocean if you consider the air a substrate, but there's not really any substrate if you have to attach to a rock or some fixed surface and you're trying to live in these vast expanses of open ocean. So if you take one of those that washes up on the beach in fairly good condition and put it in a bucket of water, maybe like a white bowl or a clear bowl or bucket, and if it's in good enough shape, if you leave it for a couple hours and look in that bucket again, you'll see these tiny little dots, sort of like size of a pinhead, um, and those are actually the jellies. It'll produce, it'll start producing jellyfish, so it does produce medusae um, off of that hydroid, and they can produce thousands and thousands from each one of those little um, settled groups of polyps. So the medusae that are released are basically baby jellies, baby vellellas yeah. that are going to grow up to be bigger vellellas. Well, they're going to, um, because of this alternating life cycle, they'll make um, baby gametes. They'll make, you know, like sperm and eggs that will get fertilized and then turn into the hydroid part. The medusae themselves, they live as a medusa their whole life. They don't go down and settle okay. um, or turn into the hydroid, it's actually too, you know, it's not quite like a butterfly and a caterpillar, but similar in that they don't really look like each other. Um, but in that case, the caterpillar turns into a butterfly. So I guess that's a bad analogy. But they have these two very different um, phases of their life cycle that they alternate between. So the medusae, even though they're tiny, those are actually the, you know, the sexually mature um, part of the organism as they grow up. But they start out really tiny, and again in that video, there's some some clips of them. the The deep, deep blue color is a sun protection spot. So they're living in this really extreme environment with tons of UV um, bombarding them. So they're screening pigments to to help keep them um, help keep them relatively protected. 
And that's a characteristic of a lot of these organisms that live on the surface. They're called the neuston, N-E-U-S-T-O-N. And lots of them have a blue or purple color, like the Portuguese man-o-war. Um, and there's some snails and, that uh, live on the surface as well that have a bright blue color. Wow, I didn't actually know that. That is really interesting to help protect the rest of the organism from the UV light. Mm -hmm. Cool. Now, I also read that uh, the sail on these Valellas, some of them are oriented to the right and some of them are oriented to the left. And Mm -hmm. why why do they have that difference? Well, so if you look, if you stick one so that the long axis of the oval, it looks like a zero or a capital O, and the sail will go across it either like a slash or a backslash. So mm-hmm. like in computer parlance, you know, everyone always mistakes backslashes for slashes. But anyway, if it goes from upper left to lower right, that's a backslash, and we call that like a left-handed <laughs> valella. And there's a notion that ones in the southern hemisphere have sails going one way and the northern hemisphere have sails going the other way to help them sail downwind in the prevailing wind in like, quote-unquote, the right direction. It doesn't actually turn... Most of them are left-handed, basically, that, that we see, and even in Japan um, and in New Zealand, I think the majority of them are left-handed, but some of them are right-handed. And because that sail is tilted, it, it's it's like a sailboat, in a way, um, with a very ineffective keel, but it, it will go downwind at a certain angle from the wind, and there's a series of papers about this. Um, if you have a left sail or right sail, it's going to affect how you move when the wind is blowing. And so the thought was that it would help keep them from blowing on shore um, by having a sail oriented, and it would keep them in that open ocean environment. Interesting. Is is there any thought about potential of this lefty or righty based on distribution of them to distribute themselves in a wider area, if they were all the same side, they might all go the same way. But if they are oriented, is that anything in terms of distribution of Um, the species? I mean, it could be, but it doesn't seem to play out if you look at the numbers. There's been a few studies where people, you know, have have done the statistics and trying to figure out how many righties there are out of of lefties. Um, And actually, if if people do end up reporting these guys to Jellywatch, um, it, it would be interesting to for them to poke through and look for for righties. Um, again, they'll look like a slash if you orient the the sail the long way. Um, it's kind of like finding a four leaf clover. I think in in this case where you're looking for the the right handed valella. <laughs> um, but in general, like if you think about um, debris lines and you know the the, the so called Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And just plastic trash. You'll often, if you're out in a boat, you'll see a line where there's like a windrow, and all this trash has accumulated there. Um, all the things that float on the surface they tend to pool in these little eddies with the wind. And so Valella do the same thing, and you get really, really dense rafts of them. Um, times it's not to say they're always like that. I mean, we find them where there's you know maybe. 20 or 50 or 100 feet between between them, and they're just spread out uniformly, but um, they do tend to congregate. And it doesn't seem like they have a special adaptation of, like, you guys go this way and we'll go that way and <laughs> improve our chances. Interesting. A couple of years ago, uh, our Sanctuary at Sea program, um, that the access program that does at-sea monitoring for seabirds and mammals mm-hmm. and oceanographic monitoring, they were offshore and seeing Valellas as far as the eye could see. And at first they thought there was like an oil slick when they looked and they were like, oh, my God, these are actually Valellas. And it was so interesting, the photos, it just looked like, um, it almost looked like snow-capped peaks in the sense of that light sail. And it was really, really cool that they saw that. And they also observed ocean sunfish, our mola molas. Totally. Totally taking snacks and just eating yeah, Valella. So that, that was really neat to see all these amazing ocean things. And I love the Valella phenomena because it's such a great way for all people who enjoy the beach to become ocean, interested in the ocean and ocean sciences. Mm-hmm. And it draws so much curiosity because they're so beautiful. 
And, you know, I know that you have started the Citizen Science Project to kind of capture that with people that might be enjoying the beach and observing things along the beach. And you started JellyWatch.org. Can you tell us a little bit about JellyWatch and and what this this Citizen Science Project is all about and, and how it contributes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I can start with what, what you just um, alluded to, which is this this idea of inspiring people when they see something weird on the beach. And, you know, it piques their curiosity. Um, but I, I like to think that we have three goals for Jelly Watch, and one is to inspire people to just in, enjoy the ocean, you know, observe it closely, and also not not be put off by, you know, Valella coming ashore. It like, could get stinky or it could look like it's an invasion, but really they're, they're a natural part of the ecosystem out there. And as you mentioned, they're feeding lots of um, Valella, sea turtles, and even um, seabirds and fish. So jellies, um, sorry, mola mola, they're feeding the mola mola and, and, and the other organisms. Um, so for this site, one of the goals is just to try to get people to look at jellies and look at the ocean in a little different way. Um, but the main one is, well, one of the main ones is, is for research because we go out maybe once a month, collect, you know, in great detail by scuba diving or with one of our submersibles, we can sample the jellies all the way down to 4,000 meters. Um, but that's, you know, once a month and in one specific location. So we don't get a good idea of these big trends of when the jellies are showing up, how intense is, is the jelly bloom this year, how far does it extend. And so we started the Citizen Science site because people are on the ocean, you know, thousands and thousands of people are on the ocean every single day, probably every single minute. And if we can tap into all those eyeballs out there, we can assemble a really, really unique data set. Um, and part of that is making those data available openly. So in any sighting that goes on Jelly Watch, people can do bulk downloads of all the reports from a certain organism or their area or a certain time period. And so we have a lot of school projects that are able to do, you know, the jellies of Indonesia when the, they might not be able to actually get to Indonesia and see them. So those those are two of the main goals are to inspire and to do research and then also just to educate people. They see some weird orange blob floating up on the beach and usually with a snapshot, sometimes even with just a verbal description, we can identify what that was and then they can look up a picture of what it looks like when it's happily swimming around. Um, and it's it's been a really rewarding, you know, it started as a side project and <laughs> we didn't have any funding really, but it's just been so rewarding, all the interactions with people and, and the, the cool pictures that people post. Um, we've had researchers fly to a place, you know, far away because their study organism was reported, and they met with this, you know, like the mom and the kid who had reported it, met with this researcher and went out to the beach and everything and collected the animals. So um, it's it's been really fun to make a lot of connections like that. That's really cool. Have there been any totally new observations of species that you are not familiar with? Um, I wouldn't say species that we're not familiar with, but definitely species in an area where they weren't known before. Um, so there's been several examples of that. We actually did from Alaska. We got a um, report of a guy who saw this giant jellyfish, and it turned out to be a deep-sea species that um, was described by George Matsumoto and, and everybody um, here um, a while ago, but it's a it's like a really deep living species, and it turned out this guy had seen it on a scuba dive um, in Alaska. So there's been some some fun connections like that. That's so cool. So I want to talk a little bit about jellies and all. I know, and I noticed this on your on the website jellywatch.org. There is just this discussion about you know these there's these claims that as the ocean warms that there may be more jellies on the rise and the environment is more is better for jellies than for other species. Mm-hmm. And it's I don't know, is it too early to say that? Have we seen increases of jellies in certain areas of the global ocean yet? And Jelly Watch might be a good way to to get a yeah, little bit of information on that. That's part of the reason that we started it is to try to to develop a timeline for for claims like that. We we actually have done some studies um, based on the observations that are available, and it's pretty clear 
that jellies follow about a decadal time scale. So there'll be lots of jellies that people report for 12 years, say, and then another 12 years not. And I think that timing um, lends itself to having people say, well, I've never seen them like this before, Mm -hmm. because it's a 20-year period until you're going to maybe see them again or 15 years until you see them again. So if you're a lifeguard or even a fisherman or something, you might say, wow, I've never seen this before. And so I have some newspaper clippings that go all the way back to like 1906, and they're saying, we've never seen them like this before. Um, so people are always surprised that there are jellyfish in the ocean in, in high abundance, and, and their life cycles do lend themselves to forming these blooms. Um, so part of a, there's a couple arguments related to that. So one, one thing is, I think if you do, if we do take out fish through fishing, then the relative importance of the jellies could increase even though the numbers are not actually changing because they're a larger proportion of the ecosystem. Um, and then related to climatic change, I, the the distribution of certain species will definitely change as the water gets warmer. So, for example, in Monterey, um, we may see more of southern species that we don't usually see, but we're going to see much less of our sea nettle. So our our normal local jellies were actually much lower the last couple of years because we had warmer waters and they were displaced to the north. Mm-hmm. So changing ocean conditions will definitely shuffle the communities that any one point will um, see, but their overall numbers, they're going to be adversely affected if the ocean becomes less healthy and less productive because they need to eat as well. They can't subsist on on microbes. Um, So they want a good healthy plankton, and they're more competing with, you know, whales and some of the sardines and things like that than they are, um, like, living on their own in their own little part of the food web. Mm-hmm. Do jellies discern on the type of plankton that they eat? Or is there certain species that they're just, they don't eat or how do, you know, um, I'm just being curious about feed. that. Yeah, I'm just, I mean, a lot, of, all jellies eat plankton, right? Pretty much. So yeah, that's, we actually have a proposal, we have a project right now um, to look at prey selectivity in siphonophores, which are another group of hydrozones, but Basically, some jellies um, are very specialized and some jellies are very generalist. So we did a a food web paper recently. Um, We found, we took all the ROV video observations and looked at who was eating whom in there. We found one um, kind of jelly that ate 22 different kinds of prey. And then we found another jelly, a tinafore, that only eats a certain one species of polychaete worm. Hmm. So you have the whole range of extremes there where things are specialized for capturing and feeding on a certain organism or they're very generalist and trying to, um, you know, catch anything that they can bump into with their tentacles. That's great. So we see a lot of relationships in that, both the jellies as predators and then also with the jellies as prey. Um, We recently found that there's a deep sea octopus that seems to feed only on jellies. Wow. Um, So it's not just sea turtles, but even something like a giant octopus. That is amazing. That's so cool. That's, that's that's some of the great stuff that the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute does, and I hope people will take a look at their website. They've got great information on their website sharing these findings of their deep-sea research. It's really, really cool. Now, we just have a couple minutes left, and I, you know, I think this might get back to your discussion about the decadal kind of <laughs> cycle of jellies. But here locally in Tomales Bay— which is our uh, rather shallow body of water. A lot of us like to swim in. And mm-hmm. there do seem to be years where we have really, really thick moon jellies and then years where we have hardly any. And then one summer we had so many of those nettles in the mm-hmm. bay. And thinking about that decadal cycle, like I had never experienced that and I've been out here 20 years. So it's just kind of curious, is that kind of play into those decade cycles of terms of how jellies, when they appear and when they don't appear? And uh, are there, is there anything that can help predict that? It could. So um, both of those have polyps, and especially moon jellies have polyps that they like to grow on, like, the roof of a cave or the underside of a dock. 
And so if there's substrate there that wasn't there before, some, something for them to have their polyps grow on, then it could happen. But also, if you think about it, you have to have a polyp. It grows and grows, makes baby jellyfish. Those guys pop off. They go out. They grow. You know, that whole cohort grows up to to be a much larger jelly. It takes some time for that to happen, and it has to be the right conditions for them to um, be happy and produce all those babies. Mm-hmm. And so I think that the periodicity feeds into that part of the life cycle and, and the local conditions there in the bay that are going to trigger them to to um, grow quickly and pop off their, their baby jellies. Interesting. How about the nettles? Because they were just so abundant you couldn't even go in the water, and they were all over the beaches. Um, was that? That was Chrysora. Ago, though, right? The Chrysora okay. jellies? Yeah. But how long ago was that? Oh, was, we... was that last year? I think it was last year. Last summer. Okay. Because, yeah, we typically have those, and there's actually a paper from 1925 that talks about the hordes of Chrysora that appear annually along our shores. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what the leatherback sea turtles swim 6,000 miles to feed on. So they, they've been here for a long time. But for, for us locally here, that was actually, like I mentioned, a low year for them a couple of years ago, like the last two or three years. Um, it was a really low year. But now I think they're returning to to their more typical numbers. Um, but in Tomales Bay itself, I don't know if, if maybe a population kind of took hold there um, and some polyps grew. Well, we'll see what happens this year. So that they're locally sourced. Well, hopefully some people will join Jelly Watch yeah, now and do. start sharing this information. I know I'm going to get on um, because we jellies... Have stickers, too, if anybody wants to uh, email... The uh, contact us through the website if you're a teacher or something. We can um, send a little pack of stickers out. Oh, a pack of stickers. Stickers for Jelly Watchers. <laughs> That's great. Well, Steve, thank you for calling in today. And definitely could talk more and more about all these different groups of jellies. But these are the ones that are pretty common around our shores. And I love the, yep. the variability that we see year to year. Some of the things that keeps us curious about the ocean and what makes these things abundant or less abundant and thanks for sharing some of the stories too about some of the deep sea jelly findings and some of the studies going on with that really really interesting are there any last things you'd like to share with our listeners um no just go to jelly watch i think the the idea of the new stone those volala drifting around in the open ocean it ties back into the ocean cleanup project so that's a whole nother can of worms but i would suggest that people look up an article in The Atlantic by Rebecca Helm about ocean cleanup and its effect on Valhalla and Nether Newstone. Oh, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, we actually had a, a show about this, um, about the ocean cleanup with some marine debris people a couple months ago, hmm. talking about some of the, the impacts that are not widely shared or widely discussed yep. on the, the open ocean ecology. So I'll check that out. An article by Rebecca Helm from The Atlantic. In The Atlantic. Yeah, if you look Ocean Cleanup in Atlantic, um, it's one of the first results that comes up. Sounds great. Awesome. Thank you, Steve. Have a great day, and thanks for sharing everything about jellies. Okay, thanks a lot. All right, take care. Take care. We've been talking with Dr. Steve Haddock from Ambari, the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, and learning all about Valella Valellas and other aspects of jellies on our shores. And a couple of things I just want to re- repeat that he shared. The Citizen Science Project, jellywatch.org, is a place for us to all contribute our findings. If you're a beachgoer, enjoy the beach once once or twice a year or once or twice a week. You can help contribute by your, uh, sharing your findings at jellywatch.org. I believe there's an app with that that you can download if you have a phone. So check that out. And the video that he was referring to, The Secret Life of Valella, is something you can look up to learn a little bit more about these amazing creatures that wash up on our shores. And he lastly just shared The Atlantic, an article in The Atlantic by Rebecca Helm, um, an article that looks at some of the ecological issues with the great ocean cleanup that's been in the news quite a bit. So very fun and interesting. I loved having the natural history interviews on ocean currents. I always learn something new. And today I learned 
about the color, the blue and the purple of these offshore Newston. The Newston he, is the things that free float out in the open ocean on the surface. And they use that blue and purple to help protect the rest of the organism from the UV light that they face all day long from the ocean. Fascinating. So here we are, Ocean Currents. This is KWMR Point Race Station. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be talking with Jeff Chester of Oceana. Stay with us. You're tuned here to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. And I'm going to transition this next half to talking a bit about the sardine fishery here on the West Coast. And my guest calling in is Dr. Jeff Chester from Oceana. And he's been on KWMR a couple times talking about this issue on Robin Carpenter's show, The Farm and Food Shed Report. So some of you may have heard some of these stories before about the state of some of these forage fish in California. Um, Jeff currently works on Oceana's U.S. West Coast campaigns to implement ecosystem-based management of forage fish, which is the fish that's eaten by lots of other animals, protect seafloor habitats from bottom trawling, and reduce fisheries bycatch. And he's had a very lengthy career in marine conservation and has been very up-to-date on this issue with sardines. So I'm thrilled to welcome Jeff Chester to Ocean Currents. Jeff, you're live on KWMR. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. So tell us what's going on. I understand that our regulators here on the West Coast voted unanimously to ban commercial sardine fishing for the fifth straight year, or is it the fourth straight year? Yeah, this would actually be the the fifth uh, season since they um, they did uh, close the fishery by emergency action back in April of 2015, and so this uh, this vote would actually close it through uh, through June of 2020. And for folks that aren't so familiar, sardines are rather small fish. They are up to 12 inches long, and they can live up to 13 years, but usually not past five. And they usually reproduce at age one or two, depending on the conditions in the ocean. And they can spawn multiple times in the season. And these fish are considered one of the healthier fish for people to eat because they're rather low on the food chain, eating plankton versus consuming lots of other fish. So I know they're a concern for for people to be aware about, but they're also such an important fish for seabirds and whales and other fishes in the ocean. So how about uh, talking a little bit about what are some of the suspected ideas about the declines in the last few years? Yeah, so sardines and uh, other types of these small uh, fishes, like the forage fish you mentioned, um, they tend to be kind of boom and bust species in terms of their population. So they're ve- they're typically very uh, dependent on what's happening with ocean conditions. And so you know, just like we have seasons, uh, you know, summer, winter, spring, uh, you know, in terms of uh, on an annual basis, so the ocean actually kind of goes through some of these cycles as well both uh, annually and over several years at a time. And so uh, over the last um, you know, decade or so, the water has actually been kind of more on, a, on uh, one end of that uh, season uh, that, that's thought to be, uh, they call it the Pacific Decadal Oscillation for all those uh, fancy oceanographers that like big words. But basically, um, you can have you know, anywhere from you know, 10 to 30 years where sardines are really productive and they do really well. There's a lot of what scientists call recruitment, where they, you know, basically they, they make lots of babies and the babies survive to become adults. Um, and so the population uh, can, can come back uh, fairly quickly. Um, the, the problem is, is that it can also decline very rapidly, too, if that what they call recruitment uh, uh, starts uh, happening very poorly um, and they don't make as many babies and the babies aren't is able to survive because there's just not enough things to eat in the, in the water or they're outcompeted by other things then the populations can can uh, crash very quickly. And so we, we saw this uh, back. Uh, sardines historically supported, you know, the, one of the largest fisheries in the world back in the 1940s um, and was based, uh, it created the whole Monterey uh, uh, sardine cannery um, 
uh, era that John Steinbeck famously wrote about. Um, but back then, the, the, the stock uh, in the 1950s and 60s basically went through this uh, incredible crash. And at the same time, it was thought that the, this industry that had, had blossomed and gotten so uh, so used to these this high production uh, kept fishing at these high industrial levels when the stock was actually collapsing. And so it was really a combination of a change in ocean conditions uh, that 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 basically moved the the population towards a collapse, but made worse by continued fishing pressure on on a stock that was very sensitive. And so that's uh, basically the same sort of story that we believe happened recently, um, where in the 1990s and 2000s the sardine population kind of came back after several decades of being gone, and uh, was very productive. It reached its peak in about 2006, but since then it's gone down and dropped by 98 percent according to the most recent stock assessment that's done by the the Federal National Marine Fisheries Service. So that's definitely bad news. And uh, again, the problem was that uh, during that collapse, over that collapse period, despite warnings that the stock was collapsing, much of the the fishery management was kind of business as usual. And now in retrospect, we know that uh, a lot more fish were taken out out of the ocean by fishing than was really sustainable for the population. And so the collapse really, I think, hit a lot of things hard. A lot of those uh, animals that you were mentioning, you know, uh, everything from whales to seabirds to salmon that all uh, eat sardines. Um, and uh, and obviously now that the fisheries closed, it's it's really been uh, uh, literally a disaster. As the the fishermen have actually uh, see, uh, been seeking federal disaster relief from the government due to the fact that the fisheries closed. What are the what are the main areas along the west coast for fish uh, sardine fisheries? I'm just thinking of uh, communities. I know Monterey is one, but what are some other key ports along the west coast where sardine? is usually hauled in. Yeah, so they, uh, Monterey is definitely one of the more famous ones, and Moss Landing, of course, uh, that's also in Monterey Bay. Um, there are some landings up in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, and but but a lot of the fisheries is uh, down in Southern California, so everywhere from San Diego to uh, the Port of San Pedro, uh, Ventura. So it's really, and, and, they're, and, and it's sardines are fished all the way up uh, into British Columbia when they're up there. Um, they haven't been uh, seen up there for a few years now, but um, there, you know, there are fisheries up in Oregon and Washington as well for the same stock of sardines, and 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 they're also even fished down uh, the same stock as fish down into Mexico as well. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the discussion, or was there pushback from any of the fishing communities? Yeah, so the the Pacific Fishery Management Council is it's a 14 member body, and they meet up and down the coast of the West Coast. They're responsible for all these federal fisheries, including sardines, um, and they meet you know everywhere from Seattle to San Diego. Uh, to talk about these these issues, uh, so they met recently up in uh, Roner Park near uh, Santa Rosa, kind of North Bay Area, um, and uh, and this was a few weeks ago. And and they they basically got this new stock assessment. I think there is a lot of uh, concern that you know that you know, the the fishermen have been raising every year that that the, the the federal assessments are missing fish and they're not seeing all the fish that are out there. Um, you know, we've heard a lot of uh, uh, concerns that maybe they're um, you know too far offshore for the survey to see, or they're too far inshore, and fishermen will bring out their big plotters and show that they can see, you know, a, a gigantic school of sardines that maybe wasn't counted. Uh, there's uh, spotter, you know, there's aerial spotter airplanes that go over and can see schools of fish. And so, I mean, it's really been the same story that we've seen for, you know, the last 10 or so years where uh, the fishermen are really complaining that just uh, the, that the scientists are not seeing enough fish. And and uh, unfortunately, the, the acoustic trawl surveys that are used actually can see into the water in, in three dimensions and, and actually use sonar to, to measure the fish. And then they, they drag nets behind uh, the, the boats to actually de- determine which species they are. And that's how the federal government counts anchovies and sardines and mackerels and some of these other uh, small forage fish. Um, they've been doing that every year and, and really have one of the world's best uh, uh, setups to do this type of surveys. It's really used around the world. 
uh, and accept it as, I think, the global standard for how you count fish like this. Um, but any time that the numbers show up low, uh, you certainly see you know, repeatedly the concerns that, well, you know, maybe the sampling method isn't good enough and maybe it's missing too many fish. Um, and so the, you know, the, the industry, I think, ultimately um, wants to see different types of surveys done and, and make sure they're not missing the fish. Um, but ultimately, the, the you know, I think they they saw the writing on the wall that the population really is so low that um, that, that there's not enough to support a com- support a commercial fishery right now, and so it was unanimous decision to keep the fishery closed. And uh, now that the stock is even lower than it's been over the last few years, it's continued to decline even with the fishery closed. Um, the council is and, and National Marine Fisheries Service are going to have to declare the stock actually overfished, which is a legal term and definition that's used when the stock drops below a certain threshold value. Uh, in this case, anytime the stock is below 50,000 tons, uh, it's considered overfished, and the stock assessment shows it's around 27,000 tons uh, right now. Wow. Do they keep monitoring year-round for these sardine populations, or is there a specific time of year for these stock assessments? Yeah, the the, the surveys that they do for sardines, they usually um, they usually start uh, they, they they do a spring or a summer survey. Um, so the survey takes about eighty days, and it goes all the way from British Columbia down to the Mexican border. Um, we have to kind of guess what's down in Mexico based on what, uh, how many sardines they're catching because uh, we don't have the, uh, uh, an international agreement on the science to count the fish with Mexico. So that does make things certainly uh, adds another level of complication. Mm. Um, and so that's something that we've been trying to push is better uh, international cooperation, at least in terms of the science, uh, much less um, it, w- it would be a nice thing to actually make sure that there's some sort of international cooperation in terms of how much is being caught as well. Um, but so that, that, that does exist for some species, uh, like some of the tunas that are managed internationally, but unfortunately sardines and anchovies and some of these small forage fish are not managed through an international agreement like that. Um, and so it happens, yeah, in the summertime, and uh, it's basically kind of a snapshot where a boat, the boat basically goes all the way down and does these long uh, transects, you know, from the shoreline all the way out to, you know, many miles to sea and kind of goes back and forth and, quote, mows the lawn. And based on what they see, they, they're able to, to develop these estimates. Um, and they've been doing that uh, with that method for about the last 15 years now. Are sardines only in the Pacific, on the Eastern Pacific, or are they in other areas of other ocean basins? So, yeah, the, the sardines, or it's kind of a, a larger genus of fish, sardinops. I mean, the, the, you, you'll see them, um, they, they, they fish sardines in the Philippines, they're off Brazil. They're really, uh, I mean, you, you'll see massive sardines, you know, in these, the, the famous uh, you know, BBC videos and stuff uh, down in South Africa. There's real famous sardine migration. So it's typically different, uh, oftentimes different species of sardines or different stocks or populations of them. But they're, they're pretty common uh, forage fish throughout the world. And, um, and and in some places, uh, like the Philippines, it's one of the major staples in food. Um, unfortunately, as you mentioned, uh, while while they are uh, extremely healthy, I think, for people to eat, and we, we really encourage people to try to eat more of these small forage fish because not only the, the contaminants are low, but it also has a very low uh, carbon footprint, and it, it has a, a lower impact on the food chain, we believe, if we're eating these directly. Um, people don't really eat them in large amounts here. I mean, certain, uh, you know, at certain times historically, you know, like if you were hanging out in Monterey as a little kid in the 1940s, you know, you'd probably eat sardines every day. <laughs> um, but, but you, know, you know, unless you live in, you know, Norway or something, you know, in this part of the world, um, people aren't really as used to eating them. And I think we, we, we our preferences are, are different. We t- tend to like the big, big fillets of something. People don't like to see, you know, actual uh, bones or, or on them. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting that, um, you know, well over 95% of the sardines that are caught here are, are really just frozen and exported, mostly to become uh, either bait for large long-line tuna fisheries, or uh, the, probably the majority of them now are being used to, um, to fatten up uh, fish on fish farms, uh, like bluefin tunas out in Australia, where they basically just shovel in, you know, several pounds of uh, sardines, and, you know, for every, you know, 
10 pounds, 10 to 20 pounds or so of sardines shoveled in, you get an extra pound of growth of these uh, farm tunas. And so it makes economic sense for them to do it, but it's, it's kind of a questionable use of this valuable resource. Why are we, why are we fishing the, you know, these uh, valuable forage fish and, and rather than eating them ourselves, just feeding them to fatten up something else? Um, many years ago, the Pacific Fisheries Management Council passed a ban on krill harvesting on the West Coast. And krill being a substantial harvest or forage for so many species, including fisheries. Are you ultimately hoping to see something like that for sardines in the future? Well, it's interesting because the what 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 was interesting about krill, uh, which we were actually involved in and uh, and and made a big push for back when the council adopted that back in two thousand and six, uh, if you can believe it. Um, yeah, but it was because their value is 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 forage was thought to be greater than the value of the of 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 krill if you actually caught them and sold them. And so um, th- there are some interesting arguments about that. One thing that the council has done is basically because the thing with krill was that people weren't fishing it yet. And the idea was to prevent a new fishery from starting on it before it started, right? The idea being that, that once you start and actually have a, a big fishery, there's a lot more economic consequences to shutting something like that down. And oftentimes you might not see the impacts until it's too late. And so the council did actually say, you know what, let's not just do this for krill. We should have that policy for any new forage fish uh, fishery that we would look at. So everything from these, you know, pelagic squids, uh, like the neon flying squid, one of my favorites, to, you know, glow-in-the-dark lantern fish that, you know, are, are fisheries out there that are forage fish that could be caught in large numbers. The council did say, let's, let's put a prohibition on fishing those until we really understand the impacts and essentially reverse the burden of proof. It's a lot harder, though, when you're dealing with fisheries that uh, there's already an industry set up around. So sardines, anchovies, these are fisheries that have been around for a long time. And our, our position is really not to see those fisheries go away. It's really that we we need to be smarter and more precautionary about how we manage them. So what Oceana's position basically is, is for these fish that do have these booms and busts, we should be able to go out and harvest those fish when they're in the boom, when they're very productive and when they're at high abundance. The real, the real damage and the impact of fishing happens when we fish too hard when these stocks are low. And so what we need to do is basically be able to, to leave them alone uh, for extended periods at a time. Now, that's kind of a difficult thing to do, though, if you can imagine. If you're a fisherman and you want to you know, keep filling your net up, uh, it's, it's a hard idea to say, to, to say well, I, I guess I just have to sit around and wait for another few years for the fish to come back. And so that's, I think, one of the big challenges, one of the ways that the the marine life does that since you know obviously the marine life have to deal with these same booms and busts is they they fished for different things depending on what's more abundant um, and they tend to actually leave you know uh, the, the low abundant things alone more because they're able to harvest something else so things you know oftentimes for example um, uh, market squid it's another uh, fish or Fish, fishery, to, invertebrate actually, but um, they, they're caught with the same types of nets by the same boats that catch sardines off of the coast here. And so there may be ways to um, substitute what we're actually catching and, and switch, just like the predators have learned to do over millions of years of evolution. So Jeff, we're just about at the end of the show, so just one last question. And I'm just, what is the most important thing for listeners and consumers to know about sardines and the sardine fishery overall, or maybe it's all fish that they might be thinking about purchasing? Yeah, well, I, I think certainly uh, people need to realize that um, we're, we're not out of the woods yet with respect to uh, having an overfishing problem here on the West Coast. Um, I think we, we, we've seen now, this is another example of, a, of a, what was a healthy fish stock, and overfishing did make the problem worse. Um, I do think that uh, that we can hopefully learn learn the lessons there, and also ultimately also realize that these these fish do have an immense value for our wildlife, um, and and that ought to be taken into account as well. So it shouldn't just be uh, about maximizing how much we take out, but also thinking about how we get the most value because it might might actually make more sense to leave some of these sardines in the ocean to feed the the valuable uh, whales that support our coastal communities and seabirds and even other fish that we like to eat as well, like larger salmon, halibut, and tunas. So uh, even though they're some of the littlest fish out there, uh, they, they, they're some of the most important. 
Thank you so much. I really appreciate you calling in to share this information. And we really want to be aware to be responsive to these fisheries and the changing ocean conditions in my mind, because we need to protect these for the future for not only the wildlife, but also for humans that that re- want fish to have in their lives. We need, really need to be flexible in how we consider harvesting and staying up on these populations under changing ocean conditions, too. So hopefully the science will continue to keep going forward to best predict how uh, populations will respond. Yeah, well, th- well, thank you for having me, and thank you for raising awareness and everything you're doing. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. Take care. We've just been talking with Dr. Jeff Chester of Oceana and learning about the sardine fishery that's just been declared overfished for the fifth year in a row. And as we talked about earlier, this is a fishery that really is known as a boomer bust fishery, really depends on the ocean cycles that we have happening, meaning if it's warm or if it's cold, what type of food is available for them to be successful and to reproduce. So there's a lot of different factors when it comes to fisheries management, and it's great for people to be keeping an eye out. It's great for the science to keep going forward. And um, thank Jeff for bringing this to our attention today. Ocean Currents, time to wrap it up, is the first Monday of every month, uh, 11 to 12. And I love hearing from listeners. So if you have ideas for topics, questions, comments, you can email me at cordellbank at noaa.gov. Wanted to just let you know, too, just in terms of one little stewardship thing I could leave you with. Number one, check out jellywatch.org if you're a beachgoer, so you can contribute to that. But out in Point Reyes recently, we just had an unfortunate situation with a off-leash dog in an off-leash area in a part of the Point Reyes National Seashore. Now, this is snowy plover breeding season, and so there's areas of the beaches where we have no dogs marked off. And sadly, a dog was off-leash and actually ended up killing a threatened pinniped species, a Guadalupe fur seal. So it's kind of a really sad situation that, that that happened. And I know a lot of us love the ocean and sometimes forget about the impact of those things. So I just really want to encourage people to keep an eye on on the rules and where they're posted about dogs. I have a dog. I love my dog. But I also really love uh, the, the parks that we have and the beautiful places we have and wildlife. So I encourage people to really keep an eye on those signs and make sure they know where they're walking so that we can help protect everybody. And that's out here at Point Reyes. And I know it happens elsewhere around um, the coast of California and anywhere if you're listening from afar. So that's my last little piece of stewardship information for you. Thanks so much for listening to KWMR. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Dot gov.